I would like to invite you to open up your Bibles, though, to look at our scripture passage for this uh, morning, and it should be very easy for you to find. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1, 1. So you're going to open up to the very first verse in the Bible. Can you find that? I'm actually going to read the first four verses, but you might feel interested enough to keep reading, and that's fine if you want to continue to read through the whole chapter. That'd be great, but I'm, we're going to look at the first four verses to start with. Genesis 1, 1. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light, and it was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. We are starting a brand new series, which we're going to carry out for the next couple months, about core strength. Do you know what your core muscles are? I'm thinking physically now, your core muscles. These are the muscles that are kind of in this area, I guess, around your middle and they are there to support the rest of your body. They come around your spine. They help you with good posture and uh, balance. And they're, they're very important, I understand, to making sure that uh, we kind of like move properly and have proper posture. I guess they also help with, if you're into any kind of athletic activity, these core muscles help you with your performance. They help you with balance. They actually help make everyday tasks safer and simpler Tasks as simple as like going up steps or opening doors, carrying groceries, lifting up a kid. These tasks are easier if, you're, if you have a strong core. Now, we've got some gymnasts here who maybe can help me if I haven't quite got this right. Am I, am I right about these core muscles? Okay, now I'm thinking about exercises that are really good for your core. Does anybody know what exercises you would do to really help strengthen your core? Eat. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a different kind of core muscle, I guess. <laughs> I understand that one of the best exercises, correct me, you gymnasts, if I'm wrong, is simply the plank, right? You guys know what the plank is? It's when you just go out like this, and then I guess the key to this is to hold it for a really long time. I am not going to demonstrate that, because after only a few seconds of me holding my plank, I start to shake, and that's a symbol that my core needs to be strengthened. I could do better with that. I freely admit that. I'm actually trying to work on core strength because it's so important. It actually influences so much of what we do every day that we want to have it strong. Do you think that there is a core strength to your faith? Is there like a core faith muscle, something that helps strengthen? And if there is, What kind of exercise do you think would be the most important exercise for strengthening your core faith? Prayer, reading the Bible, gathering together with God's people, worshiping, 
These are all kind of core faith strength exercises. We actually had a quiz about this on our app. I haven't got the results yet, but I'm guessing that it's fairly well mixed amongst these things for us. If different people find different exercises good to strengthen their core faith. So this is what we want to look at over the next few weeks to try to figure out how can we strengthen that. Hypothetical question. Somebody you care about and love a lot, maybe a family member, maybe a child, or maybe a spouse or a parent, is sick and goes to the doctor expecting that this is going to be some kind of a normal kind of diagnosis. And when they get to the doctor, they are told that this is very serious. This is a life-altering thing. What do you do in that moment? Do you panic? Are you afraid? Do you have hope? Do you pray? The thing that you do in that moment might be an illustration of the strength of your core, your core faith. And if you pray, it's probably because you believe that this world, including you and your loved one, are held in the hands of somebody who cares and is held in the hand of somebody who's bigger than you, who has power to do something about this. If you pray, it probably indicates that you have some core strength that you draw on in a moment like that. We believe in a God who is great and also in a God who is good, an all-powerful God who cares about us. That's why when we face a crisis, we pray. And that's a response. That's a response to having a strong core. So what I want to try to do over the next several weeks is to try to figure out and peel back kind of the layers of this and figure out what is it that could strengthen us more? What would give us more strength so that day by day our responses to all the things that life throws at us would be a response of faith, a response of trust in God. And my theory is that what we believe and why we believe it is important to give us strength. It gives us a core strength. So we're going to do this by looking at four D's. I think we've got a little slide that you can look at for this. There's four D's that help us understand this. Drama, doctrine, doxology, and discipleship. Doxology is a big word for praise. But, you know, I want them all D's so you could all kind of <laughs> connect to them. Drama, doctrine, doxology, and discipleship. Drama refers to the unfolding story of Scripture, that as we read through our Bibles, we recognize that there is a very dramatic tale that's being told, and it gets unfolded from generation to generation to generation. That's where we start with this drama. We start with what Scripture says about this story. This leads to doctrine. Doctrine is kind of like the facts of our faith. So as we read this drama, as we understand this story more, we start to draw some conclusions. We say, this is what it means. This is a truth that comes out of the story. This is a principle that can be derived from the story. That's doctrine. That's a key. Doctrine rooted in drama results in a response. It starts with gratitude. We just are thankful. We're like, oh my gosh, look at the thing that God has done and the way He did it. And you can't help but respond with praise and with thanks. This is the doxology. It flows right out of that. And doctrine rooted in this drama, also results in discipleship, and that has to do with then it changes how you live. Discipleship is about your 
behavior. It's about the things that we do. So both our praise and our behavior flow right out of the story and right out of the doctrine of the story. So this is what we'd like to do. We'd like to peel back some stories by using these four categories, see what the drama is, and then what's the truth that pulls out of that, the doctrine, and then figure out how we respond with our praise and with our life being shaped. So we're going to start, and you guys are going to have to practice this. Hopefully we'll practice this a number of times over the next few weeks so that you all get really good at it. My hunch is that a lot of us already do this instinctively. I think this is a natural kind of flow, a natural way to read Scripture. So we're going to practice first by asking you to simply think of a Bible story, maybe your favorite Bible story, a Bible story that comes to mind. So just take a moment and Think through the things you know about Scripture and come up with a Bible story. Maybe if you're brave, turn to your neighbor and tell them the story that you've just identified if you want to tell them a Bible story. Everybody got one in mind? Okay. So we start with simply looking at that story. And then the sec- next question is, okay, so what does the story tell us? And this moves us into doctrine. Now, I recognize this is maybe where it gets a little bit challenging, but think about the story that you just identified in your mind. Is there like a core teaching, a core truth, a core belief that comes from that story? I see lots of nods. That's good. You can think of a doctrine that comes out of that. Now, if you're brave, turn to your neighbor and tell them the story and then what doctrine you think came out of that. If, if you're not in the talking mood, just keep it in your head. Okay, good. I, I'm, I'm judging by the level of whisper that you're, you're getting it, okay? Then the next two things are the doxology and the discipleship. So because this thing happened, there's the story, and this truth came out of it, I respond. And part of my response is praise, doxology. And part of my response is like, okay, i got to live a certain way because this is true. This is where it starts to get a little challenging, but can you think of some implications of your story and your doctrine that you have in your head, a reason to give praise, or a way that that might shape your life? Okay, I'm still seeing some nods, so that's good. We're going to practice one together. We're going to practice Genesis 1-1 together, okay? So here's the drama. And Well, you tell me what the drama is in Genesis 1-1. What's the drama? God created. Yeah, that's a pretty big thing, right? In the beginning, God created. And you can actually stop there. You could take five words, the first five words of the Bible, and we could use this for the whole sermon, okay? In the beginning, that's, that's a good place to start a story, right? Something's happening here. In the beginning, God, well, that'd be a great place to start. Let's just look at what God is doing. But we'll go to the fifth word, created. In the beginning, God created. That's intriguing, isn't it? And my mind is filled with questions immediately about, well, why would God do that? What does this tell me about God? What is happening here? Why didn't God create sooner? What, what's the deal? I'm actually very intrigued. But then it gets even better, so I'm going to go to the next verse because the story is building. Now, the God who created in the beginning is creating an earth, in an earth that was described as formless and empty. There's nothing. This God who created in the beginning had nothing to work with but 
formless in some translations say void. I like that. There's nothing but a big void. And darkness was there. And darkness was over the deep. Some translations say abyss. So you've got this big, dark, empty abyss. And you've got God creating. What a story. And the Spirit of God is there hovering over the waters. A world of emptiness and chaos and formlessness and void and chaos and ruin. If you look at all these words here, it just describes a world that is just completely undone. There's nothing. Ever experienced a world like that? Ever experienced a world that's filled with chaos and ruin? But this world is not left in chaos because the Spirit of God is there. We got some good news in this story. Darkness and chaos and God hovering. And the word here is actually like fluttering or vibrating. So here's God hanging out over the top of this chaotic world that's empty. hovering over the face of the dark abyss. And I think you can take darkness two ways here. You can take darkness literally. You can think of dark, uh, darkness that's so dark. Ever been in a cave? A darkness that's so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face? That's this darkness. The same word is actually used in Exodus chapter 10. In that passage, the plagues are coming to the Egyptians. And one of the plagues was a plague of darkness. And in that passage, this darkness is described as so dark, you could feel it. You could feel the darkness. Ever been there? In a place that's so dark, you could feel it? But you could also take this word figuratively, because when we talk about darkness, we're often talking about things like Misery and destruction and sorrow and ignorance and death and evil, right? The darkness is coming in against us, this world. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this idea that these bad things make it feel dark in our lives. Ever been there? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This God who hovers over chaos. We're only two verses into the story. 20 words, if you count them up in the original, 20 words in, and we already have this intense drama of a God who is creating in the midst of chaos, a God who is working against the darkness, a God who wants to bring light. What's going to happen? While it's so intense, God decides he needs to speak. So God says, let there be light. And there was light. Where there was only darkness before. And God saw the light and he said, that is good. It's good to have light in the darkness. This is the kind of thing God creates as God hovers around by His Spirit over chaos and darkness. 
And God separated the light from the darkness. Is this a good story or what? A God who intervenes to bring light into darkness. That's how the story starts. That's the drama. So what do you make of this? Is there some kind of doctrine? Is there some kind of teaching or some kind of truth that could come rising up out of this story? Well, I can think of a whole bunch of them. We could talk about God and His creative power, God and His might, God is light, God overcoming darkness, God's goodness, God's greatness. I'm going to summarize the whole sermon today by the doctrine, God is great. Because you've got to be great to create something out of nothing, don't you? Maybe some of you prayed this prayer when you were a kid. Remember this prayer? God is great and God is good and we thank Him for this food. That is a great doctrinal prayer. There's so much truth in those few words. God is great and God is good. And we thank Him because He has provided this for us. He's the God who creates. If you want a $10 doctrinal word for this, I would say sovereignty would be a good one. That there is a God who's in control of all things. It's the God who made everything. There's a God who is in charge of all things. He's the God who hovered over chaos and darkness and made light come out of the darkness. And what's your reaction to this doctrine? I'm going to read the reaction of one of the psalmists, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, your greatness is seen in all the earth. Your praise reaches to the heavens. It is by, sung by children and babies. When I look at the sky which you have made, at the moon and the stars which you have set in their places, what are human beings that you think of them, mere mortals that you care for them? Yet you made them inferior only to yourself. You crowned them with glory and honor. You appointed them rulers over everything you made. O Lord, our Lord, your greatness is seen in all the world. When you see a story about a God who creates light out of darkness, your response is praise. This is something that nobody else could do. This is something that only God could do. And he's done it. This is a great God. Did you ever hear the story about the scientist who had a little discussion with God and the discussion was about God's creative powers and the scientist was saying, you know, God, we've evolved a lot since the old days and now we have lots of power and so we can do all kinds of things. I'm not sure we even need God anymore, he says. I think we can do all the things you can do. I think we can create anything you can create. And God thinks this is kind of interesting, so he says, okay, well, why don't we have a little contest then? And why don't we make a man? And you make a man, and I'll make... Well, I already made a man, so I don't need to make another one. But you make a man, and we'll call it even. And the scientist thinks, yeah, that's a pretty good deal. So he bends down. And God says, no, wait, we're going to use the same um, materials I used when I created. So I made man out of the dust. You have to do that too. So the man, the scientist, reached down to pick up some dust, and God says, no, wait, get your own dust. There's only one God who ever made anything out of nothing. The world, remember, was void and empty and chaotic. There's some intense kind of like 
drama that gets set up in this part of the story that gets carried out through the rest of the story, and we're going to follow some of these trails in the weeks to come, but one of those would be this battle that is set up right from the beginning between light and darkness, that there's this animosity, this battle that's going on with darkness trying to overcome light and light trying to overcome darkness. And we see that this is pretty intense and it continues from generation to generation. And sometimes it's amazing how much this battle gets intensified at certain times. But we're told, now this is jumping way ahead in the story, but we're told in John 1 that there was a light that came into the world and the darkness did not like the light. The darkness denied the light or the darkness resisted the light. Well, we see that that pattern is not new either. That happens over and over again. And so even though we have this opportunity to respond in worship to the God who created us, we creatures oftentimes take a darker path. We take a shortcut. And there's lots of places we could look to this, but we hold on to our darkness and our confusion and our chaos, and we do some funny things. Actually, they would be really funny if they weren't so sad. I'm going to just share one example from Isaiah 45 uh, or Isaiah 44. This is a picture of how darkness keeps creeping back in, and the creature, instead of worshiping the Creator, ends up worshiping creation and ultimately worshiping himself. Isaiah 44. Just listen to the story. The carpenter measures the wood. He outlines a figure with chalk, carves it out with his tools, and he makes it in the form of a human, a handsome human figure to be placed in his house. He might cut down cedars to use or choose oak or cypress wood from the forest, or he might plant a laurel tree and wait for it to grow. A person uses part of the tree for fuel and part of it for making an idol. With one part, he builds a fire to warm himself and bake bread, and the other part, he makes a god and he worships it. With some of the wood, he makes fire, he roasts his meat, he eats it, and he's satisfied, he's warmed, and he says, how nice this is, life is beautiful. And with the rest of the wood, he makes an idol, and he bows down, and he worships it, and he prays, and he says, you are my God, now save me. This illustrates the futility of the, the battle of light and darkness and how darkness keeps creeping in, which leads to the last D, the discipleship. So if we have a story that presents a truth to us, a doctrine, and that causes this response of praise, then the next thing we start to recognize is these things are shaping us, they're forming us, they're making us disciples, and they have implications for how we live from day to day. If God created all things... That makes God great, and we worship Him because He is worthy of our worship Him, and we worship no other gods. There is only one God. That's the one implication of this. And another is that this God we worship is the God who creates and is still creating today. And so if we follow this God, do we understand that means He might have some creating to do in us? He might have some shaping he wants to do for each of us. And are we willing to let him do that, this God who's the creator of all things? I'm pulling some of these thoughts from another use of the word create, which is in Psalm 51. Listen to these words. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, if it's true that God 
hovered by his spirit over the emptiness and the void of creation, and he made something out of nothing, then it is true that he is worthy of our worship, and it's true that he is still shaping us, and he has every right to shape us, to mold us in the ways that he desires to mold us. Jeremiah tells a similar story in Jeremiah 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. The Lord said, go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went to the potter's house, and I saw this potter working at his wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, can I not do with you as the potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, declares the Lord, so you are in my hand. This God who hovered over the chaos and separated the light from the darkness says, I want to hold you in my hand and I want to shape you. Is this a great story or what? So we're going to have a little more drama here this morning. And the drama takes place at this table. We come to this table every month and we celebrate this opportunity to gather in God's presence and to partake of the body and the blood of Christ. There's a drama that goes on at this table. You know that. You know. We all know this, right? That God said, I'm going to come enter my creation. The God who made everything says, I'm going to come enter my creation. Um, We call him second Adam. He becomes the second Adam because the first Adam disobeyed and fell into sin. The second Adam comes and lives a perfect life, does everything that God expects him to do. And then he goes to the cross in obedience and dies for everyone who didn't obey God. So there's the story, and the, the, one of the doctrines that comes out of this is uh, the doctrine of substitution. He says, I'm going to die in your place. If you want the $10 doctrinal word for that, we call it substitutionary atonement. He pays for our sin by going to the cross in our place. And what's our response? Gratitude, deep gratitude for what God has done on our behalf. And then it shapes our lives because we say, God, because you have died for us, we're going to go give our lives to serve others. So as we prepare to come to this table this morning and enter into this drama by sharing in the bread and the cup, um, we're going to start with a little self-examination. This is a prayer time in which we say, okay, God, we recognize that we have not obeyed you, that we did need someone to come and die in our place. And we're going to go through a short list of the most current ways that we have not obeyed God. And we're going to confess those. And we're going to give you the opportunity to do that by yourself. Unless you're super brave and want to share them with your neighbor, you can do that too. Um, and then after a few moments, I'll lead us in a prayer of confession. So let's pray.
Lord God, you are good and you are great. And because of that, we come to you and we ask for forgiveness. And we see one of the places where your goodness and greatness is demonstrated most clearly is in the giving of your Son for us. So that if we confess our sins, you promise that you are faithful and just and you will forgive us our sins and cleanse us. And so, God, we ask for that cleansing and for creating uh, new hearts within us and restoring to us the joy of our salvation. And we know that you can do that as we partake of this meal. So we don't come to this table because we are worthy, because we have measured up. We come here because we have been made worthy. And so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the last night when Christ was with his disciples, he blessed the bread and the cup. He said, this is a new covenant, a new way to relate to God, that through this body broken and through his blood poured out, we can become God's children, his sons and daughters. We can be welcomed into God's presence. And the invitation is for anyone here today who has accepted Christ as your Savior. If you've trusted in Christ, then we'd like to invite you to participate in this meal We're going to pass the bread, and we're going to ask everyone to take and hold it until everyone's been served. There's gluten-free items in the middle of each tray. After everyone's been served, we'll eat those together, and then we'll pass the cups out and ask you to hold those till everyone's been served, and then we'll drink that together. The invitation to this table comes from Jesus himself when Jesus said, Come, for all things are now ready. One thing that comes from this meal and sharing it together is strength. This meal is designed to nurture us, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our core. So Jesus said, as often as you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. The cup of blessing that we share is the communion of the blood of Christ, and it gives strength. Jesus said, as often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. God, we bow before you again this morning to offer you our praise and our gratitude. You are a good and great God, and we thank you for the way that you lavish your love upon us, for the way that you have revealed that to us by sending us your Son. So we know that, God, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far have you removed our sins from us, and we are deeply grateful. We give you our praise and thanks because you are the one who is worthy of all of our praise and all of our thanks. God, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to gather here and to reflect on your story and the way that that shapes our lives. And I pray, God, specifically for anyone who might be here today who is facing a little bit of darkness. And they may not be facing chaos, but they might be facing confusion or discomfort. They might be troubled. God, I pray that you would shine some light into that darkness, that you would hover over them and hold them in your hand, that you would take all of us and mold us and shape us. We thank you, God, that we are part of a community that is eager to be shaped and molded and desires to follow you. And so we ask that you'll continue to lead us and teach us as a congregation how we might grow to be more and more like Christ. 
And that, God, you will continue to use us as a place that is shining light out into a dark world. We pray for our neighbors and friends and coworkers and classmates. God, we know there's many people who live their whole life in darkness and chaos. And yet, God, we understand that you're hovering even above that and that you might use us to be the one to shine a little light into those dark places. So, God, prompt us and lead us and guide us in that. God, we pray for our country. We know that there's still many things that are troubling and disturbing to many people. There's much upheaval. We pray for those who are leading our country. We pray for wisdom for them. We ask that you'd be with the president and his cabinet, with those who are in the Senate, with those who are leading at the state and local level. We pray that, God, anyone who's leading our government would act in a way that is good for all people, that they would not be self-serving and seeking their own interests, but that they would seek the interests of the common good for all. God, we look forward to what you're going to do in our community. We pray specifically for those who are getting engaged with the Vacation Bible School. Pray that those who are uh, needed to serve and volunteer would rise up and volunteer, that you would be now preparing the hearts of those kids who are going to be coming to that. We also pray, God, for those who are going to camp. We thank you for the uh, overflow of students, 21 students who are going to be heading out this summer to camp. We know that that can be a life-changing opportunity. We pray that your spirit would be hovering over those who are right now preparing and prepping for summer camps. God, above all, we just are grateful that we can come to you and we know that we have a God who's not far off and distant, but that the story tells us that you're a God who comes very close to your people. And for that, we're grateful. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.